Good morning, everyone. My name's Ross Gilbert. For those that are new here, welcome, welcome. We're excited to have you guys here and excited about uh, what God has in store for us this morning. I heard about this, uh, this interesting science experiment that I thought I'd share with you guys. Uh, it was they, they, these group of scientists, they wanted to ex- experiment or examine or study the behavior of various monkeys. And, uh, and so what they decided to do is they put these five monkeys in this large cage, and each monkey had a, a shock collar on the, the monkey, on himself. And what the, the scientists would do is they would then lower a banana into this cage of monkeys. Now, you have to understand, as, as a monkey, your whole worldview, everything that matters for you is probably all wrapped up in a banana. I mean, for them, the answer to life is probably banana, right? So that's all they're excited about and everything they're worried about. And so they would, they would lower this banana into the cage, and then it was a, just basically a race. To, for these five monkeys, first one to get to the banana kind of wins the race. And so that's what that would happen. Uh, but what the scientists were trying to do is they would then shock the other four that didn't get the banana. So you kind of imagine, right? There's that one guy sees the banana. He, he, the monkey goes and he grabs it and he's, he's eating a banana. He's having a great time. And the other four just like vibrating in the corner on, on the floor. And, and they're just experiencing all this pain. Well, this happened over and over again. And eventually the, these monkeys began to clue in that they associated banana with pain. And to the point where they didn't want anything to do with the banana anymore. And so the, the banana would come down and no monkey would run for it. They would just sit there and, and they kind of look at one another because they knew if one of them went to get the banana, then the others are going to be hurting. Well, then they decided to take it to the next level. So they took one of the monkeys out and put a brand new monkey in. He had a shock collar, but it wasn't enabled. It wasn't on. It was just a fake one. And so he's there and these four other monkeys are there. And sure enough, the scientists lower another banana into the, into the room. Well, they're looking at it, and, and, and this one monkey's like, banana, life, this is great. I love this place. He goes for the banana. But guess what the other four monkeys do? They tackle him, and, and they start beating on him. And he's like, what do you mean? There's banana. Let's go eat. And they're like, no. And they just start beating on him. Well, sure enough, he eventually gets the message. When a banana comes down, you don't touch it. Now think about it. He's never been shocked. He doesn't know why he's doing this. He just knows you don't go. Well, scientists go to the next level. They take another monkey out, put a brand new monkey in, again, with a fake shock collar. Now there's three with real shock collars and two without. And sure enough, same thing happens. He quickly learns, don't go for the banana. He doesn't know why. He's never been shocked. But he knows, don't go for the banana. Well, this happens over and over again until suddenly now they got five monkeys with fake shock collars, and they're all sitting in that cage, and not one of them would touch the banana. They don't know why. They've never been shocked, but they just have learned not to do it, not to go for it. And so what we call this is tradition. I kind of feel like Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition, right? I mean, we, we have this idea where we learn certain things, but we don't necessarily know why we learn them or what they're from. And so traditions, they they vary from country to country and from culture to culture. And the reality is every one of us, we all have our own traditions. We all have family traditions or we're all kinds of different traditions in our lives. And this idea of traditions is especially true within the church. I think any sort of faith-based, religious-based culture is going to be full of traditions just simply based on how we practice things together. 
Uh, the Jews, for example, they had their seven feasts that they kind of organized their whole year around. And now all that was based on tradition. Uh, the early, Christ, early Christians, the early church, the reason that we meet on Sunday mornings was a tradition that they formed. It was to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So there's all kinds of traditions. And traditions, by definitions, aren't bad. In fact, they can be very helpful. They can be very, very powerful. It, it gives us a sense of understanding of what's coming and able to receive things. Uh, you know, even your whole morning routine is probably a tradition of sort. The, the problem is when we begin to lose sight of the purpose of the tradition and we focus in on the tradition itself. When the tradition becomes the, the, what it's all about rather than what the tradition was pointing us to. And, and so that becomes really important for us to remember. In Hebrews 13 and verse 8, the writer there, he's telling us to remember our forefathers. Remember those who've come before us. And it says, remembering those people in the outcome of their life, it says, imitate their... Now, most people, you think it says imitate their behavior, their traditions. But that's not what it says. Instead, it says imitate their faith, imitate their trust. And Hebrews 13 is coming soon after Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith, the, what some have called the hall of faith, where we have these stories of these great men and women of God and how they trusted God and acted by faith. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses, by faith, Rahab, on and on and on about all these men and women, how they acted by faith. And so these traditions are supposed to help encourage us in our faith, but not be a destination into themselves. It's not about the tradition. Because when that begins to happen, we lose sight of trusting in Jesus and we begin to trust in the tradition itself. And when that happens now, we've adopted a, a formulaic or really a legalistic form of Christianity where it's all about performance and behavior and not really about the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe the area where I think I've seen this the most within our church is surrounding the idea of, of money, of giving, where, where Christians are often instructed to tithe 10% of their income to their local church. And so we want to explore this topic this morning. So before we begin, I, I want to share with you a little bit. I remember watching uh, one message a man gave. Uh, he, he opened up the message this way. He was all, all about giving and tithing. And he says, everyone, I want you to grab your wallets and hold them up high. And so he made sure he had his wallet and he had his wallet up high. He says, everyone, grab your wallets, hold them up high. And he says, just so we're clear, this is what I'm after. Let me be clear. This is not what I'm after this morning. Because I really believe that's not what God's after this morning. As, as Peter said earlier, you know, what, what do we give God, the one who's got everything? What is the one thing he longs for? What is the one thing God desires? It's our heart. That's what we're after. And that's what this morning's going to be about. But unfortunately, there's been a lot of hurt and a lot of bondage wrapped up in this idea of giving and money. And so that's what we want to begin to to unpack and hopefully unbind some people so they can see the freedom that God has planned in this area. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, there has been so much uh, poor teaching and misunderstanding around money and within the church, and, and that has led to a lot of hurt, not just hurt people, but how, how that has really hurt your name that people go away and they think that 
this thing called faith in you or, or Christianity is just a, a scheme and a way to make money. And Father, that is, that is not what it's all about. It's about your love for us and our ability to love you in return. And so that's what we really want to focus in on this morning. And so Father, would you, would you un, unbind those who are stuck? Would you replace the lies that we've believed about money as we look into your word and we see the freedom that comes from that? In your name we pray, amen. So much of the teaching, I would say, on, on tithing within the church is a carryover from the Old Covenant. So we need to, need to kind of start there. In the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law, God had instructed his, his people, his nation, how to live. And so he had given them these laws. And they, we, we know the most famously that there's the Ten Commandments, but really there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. And those, those would all be found in those first five books of the Bible, which is referred to as the Torah. And within there, you have all kinds of things. Not only the Ten Commandments, but you've got things about what kind of clothes you're allowed to wear. You're not allowed to mix fibers, right? So you can only wear cotton. You couldn't wear cotton and polyester. And then there would be certain dietary restrictions, right? No bacon, no pork products, no lobster, no shellfish, and, and so forth. And then there would be certain uh, requirements around feasts and, and how do we live and how do we operate? What do I do when my ox tramples your field and so forth? They had all kinds of, of different rules and regulations about how they were to live and operate as a, as really as a nation. And, and one of those things was around this idea of tithing. Now, what a tithe is, is it's a, a giving of 10%. In many ways, you might think of it as the Old Testament tax system. And, and how it worked, it was, was God had 12 tribes. And one of those tribes was the Levite nation. And God said, you Levites, you're going to be, you're going to belong to me. You're going to work in my temple, serving the rest of the nation on my behalf. And so when it came to dividing up the land of Israel after the conquest of Canaan, then what God did is he said, through, jo uh, through Joshua, sorry, he says, I want you to take the land and divide it up, not among the 12 tribes, but among 11 tribes. And so you can imagine being a Levite there, maybe the head of the Levites, and you show up one day and like, this is the day we're going to find out what land we get. You know, are we in the mountains? Do we, do we have some oceanfront or beachfront property? Do we have the lush green valley? Where are we going to get? And one by one, all the tribes are getting the land and you're watching the map and you're like, that section's gone and that section's gone and that section's gone. And by the end, you're like, we got nothing. Uh, Joshua, I think there's been a mistake. I mean, you must check your books again. We've been left out of the will. I mean, clearly there's a mistake. But that wasn't the mistake at all. What happened was God says, I'm not going to give you any land because that's really going to distract you. Because if you have land, you have to look after the land. I want you to serve me and the rest of the people in the temple. And so what he said to, uh, um, uh, in Numbers 18, the uh, Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. To the sons of Levi, behold, I've given all the tithe, so all that's coming in, all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance, in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meaning. And so what happened was that they would bring one-tenth of their crops, of, their, uh, of the animals, the livestock maybe, of anything they had. They would bring that to the temple, and the temple would then use that as kind of to cover their operating expenses. So 
what some church leaders have seen and go, well, that's brilliant. That's a great way to do things. And in many ways, you know, the church is now the new temple service and the, the pastors are sort of the new Levites. And so therefore, the rest of the church, while they go and they work, then each family unit is to bring 10% of their income in because, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want to bring chickens in anymore, right? You will just take your money. So bring in, you know, your income, one-tenth of that income every year, and that will fund the ministry. And I, I understand why that would be attractive. You know, for me, I've, I've been serving in ministry and, uh, for almost 15 years now. And, you know, the greatest struggle within ministry, the thing that is the most difficult thing is worrying about finances and money. How are we going to make sure we get the bills to be paid and so forth? And so I can understand how church leaders would say, well, if every family were to donate one-tenth of their income, we wouldn't have to worry about money anymore. We would be able to sit back and relax and just focus on the ministry. And so from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But, but I think we've been missing the point of all of it. So what ends up happening is, is these, these church leaders here, with, with that intent, I mean, if you think about it, who are they really trying to look after? Themselves. And again, I speak as someone who's living off of support, and yet really what they're trying to look after is themselves. And so they often quote this passage from Malachi chapter 3. So I want to I quote this to you. Malachi chapter 3 in verses 6 to 12, it's written, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That would be referring to the law, the old covenant. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If you will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Let's understand that passage. So the book of Malachi is happening into the Old Covenant when Israel here is going through a difficult time. There's, you might consider it sort of like an economic downturn of sorts, right? There's a, a recession going on. They're, they're struggling with their crops. And as most people would expect, when you're struggling with that, we're not even sure we have enough money. We're not even sure we have enough food and, and crops and so forth. So how can we then give away 10% to someone else? And so they were worried. They were scared. And really what this passage is all about was how the Israelites, they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in themselves. And so what God was saying is, in doing so, not only are the Levites struggling, but the bigger issue is you're not trusting me. And so he says, test me now. Watch what's going to happen. Step out in faith. Give to me the tithe that is required of you in that law and watch how I will bless you. Watch how I will give you more than you could ever imagine and ever dream. So what I want you to see, this wasn't about money. Because think about it. Does God need your money? No. He's not sitting there going, you know, I'm a little light this week. Can you, can you help me out a little bit? He doesn't need our money. That's not what it's about. Again, it was about their hearts. It was about, are they willing to trust me with this? 
The, the problem is what we've done is we've taken that passage and applied it today. And we said, now you need to tithe because if you're not tithing, you're robbing God. Gulp. I mean, that is, that is terrifying. And you can only imagine how much guilt people begin to feel and how that guilt now begins to motivate us. Well, I don't want to rob God and I don't want to be disobedient to that. And so I guess I better do all that. But what they're failing to understand is that passage was not written for you and I. That passage was written to the Israelites who were operating under a whole different covenant, under the old covenant. But you and I no longer live under that old covenant. We live under a new covenant. And the new covenant is very different than the old. So let's explain a little bit more about that old covenant, right? We talked about the, there were 613 commands and it was all about different commands in order for them to live in a healthy way and operate together as a larger nation. But what was, what was interesting is the law was given not, not as a means to success. It wasn't so much that if you can follow all 613 commands and do it perfectly, then everything will be fine. It wasn't the blueprint. They thought it was that way because they were told, you know, if I follow everything, then I'll be blessed. If I fail in any point, I'm going to be cursed. But what they failed to understand was the sheer impossibility of ever following the law as it was required. Hence the reason what would happen is the rabbis would come and they would water down the law. They would begin to reduce it. So Jesus had to restore the law back to what was originally intended on the Sermon on the Mount. Because it wasn't just about don't murder anyone, it was don't hate anyone. It wasn't just don't commit adultery, it was don't even lust. And so he was restoring the law back to what it was really all about. And that was showing to everyone the sheer impossibility of ever being good enough under the law system. So recognizing that, we come to faith in Jesus Christ and what we receive is more than just forgiveness for when we failed and when we blew it, but we receive deliverance from the law. In Romans 7, in the first six verses of that chapter, Paul's explaining to people about how not only did Jesus die on that cross, but you and I were placed into him. We were crucified with Jesus. And in so doing, we died to the law. Meaning the law lost its jurisdiction and its control over us. We're no longer bound or under the law. Now we've been united and joined to Jesus Christ. And we're now one with him. And with him, we are under a whole new covenant, a very different covenant, one that does not include any commands around tithing. That would be us bringing the old covenant into the, into the new. But God hasn't done any of that. It's not a combination of the old and the new. It's not even us now being empowered to do the old covenant. Because if that were the case, then we would have to avoid all the laws in the old covenant. We'd have to honor the Sabbath. That would mean no more lobster and no more bacon. And I know that's scary for some of you. But that's not how it works. We've been set free from all of the law in order that we could be in Christ under a new covenant where this, one, this new covenant, he's given us one command. Just one. In 1 John 3, verse 23, this is it. He says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. That's it. It's easy to remember. Whole lot easier than 613. To trust, to believe, to rely upon Jesus 
such that his life through me can go and love one another. That's it. That's the whole command. Now, some have looked at it and said, well, tithing is, tithing is not just in the Old Covenant. They've said tithing really supersedes the Old Covenant. And they point back to a story uh, of Abraham and Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. So let's understand that story a little bit. We, we talked about this a few weeks uh, ago about how Abraham meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the high priest of God at the time. And, and, and Abraham just came from a successful campaign, a war that he raged, uh, raged, or waged in order to rescue his, his nephew Lot. And now out of nowhere comes Melchizedek and together Abraham and Melchizedek, they build an altar and Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. He gave him 10% of the spoils of war. And people have looked at it and said, see, this happened and it was before Moses. It was before the old covenant. And therefore, this is a principle that supersedes all the covenants and therefore still applies today. Well, there's some faulty logic in that. There's some big problems with that idea. Because now what we're saying is there are things that are in the covenant, and then there are things that are outside the covenant that ought to also be in the covenant. So let's, let's think of it in these terms. Let's suppose you, um, you know, you're working with someone and, and you make a deal. So for example, Jim, you're selling flooring. And so you go and you work with the customer and you sell some flooring to take care of the, the main floor. And you go and you, you buy the flooring, you bring it in, you install it, and, you, and here's your invoice. And then he turns around and says to you, well, uh, I'm glad you did this, and I'm, I see the number that, that I'm going to pay, but you owe me now flooring for the upper floor as well. Because really, the upper floor supersedes the main floor, and therefore it's part of it as well. And you would look at the customer and say, well, no, but we made a contract. And we signed the contract that we would provide flooring for the main floor, but not the upper floor as well. Nobody in their right mind would say, Jim now needs to honor something outside the contract. Does that make sense? Well, that's how a covenant works. A covenant is set so that we understand the conditions and the, the standards in which two, two groups will come together and operate with. And so in the new covenant, it's real simple. What was the one command? Trust God and love others. That's it. And so to say, well, now there's something in addition to that would would violate the terms of the covenant. If, if tithing were really a part of the new covenant, then you would see that. I mean, here was the apostle Paul. All the apostles, they were living off of that support. They would have needed that support. And yet not one time do they say, you now need to tithe. Make sure you're tithing to your local church. He's not doing any of that because it's not in the New Testament. It's not part of the new covenant. Now, some might say, well, is there really only one command in the New Testament? I mean, there's all kinds of commands in the New Testament. And there are. I would agree with you. There's lots of commands. Talk to, to command to the thief. If you're, if you're stealing, steal no more. If you're not working, get to work. There's all kinds of commands in there. But I would say this. All the commands that you and I see in the New Testament are really just simple explanations or a deeper commentary of the one command. The one command to trust God and love others is expressed in don't steal from people. Because when you steal from people, they don't feel loved. So don't rob from them. 
the idea of, uh, of, of working hard because it's, it's healthy. Why? Because if you're not working hard, you're taking advantage of other people and they don't feel loved, but you're also not trusting in Jesus. And so all of these ideas, all these other commands there are there just simply as expressions of that one command. And when it comes to money, again, there's no, no passages on tithing, but there is a passage or many passages on giving. Now, please understand, giving and tithing, they're not semantics. It's not just, well, it's just, you know, two words, but really it all means the same thing, right? You're, yes, you're to give, but you're supposed to give a tithe, right? You're supposed to give 10%. No, that's not how giving works in the New Testament. Giving is all about free will. Giving is all about freedom. I mean, in fact, the whole New Testament is all about that. It's for freedom that Christ set us free which means that in order for you to have that freedom, in order to give, you also have the freedom to not give. And that's, that's simply the reality of the New Testament. God is not mandating. He's not controlling any of us. He's not desiring to do so. He desired to set us free. Now the question is, what are we going to do with that freedom? And it's not there to manipulate us and to give. Instead, what he's saying is, I would like you to give, and here are some reasons why. So he gives us, really, I think, in my study, I saw two major reasons why we give in the New Testament. Um, the first one is really just to help those who are in financial need. In, in 2 Corinthians, in, in chapter 8, Paul, Paul talks about, to the Corinthians about giving to something he calls the Jerusalem Fund. You have to kind of place yourself in, in the Middle East in the first century and, and, you know, these Jews becoming new Christians, what that would have meant for their life. Because, you know, for them to, to name the name of Jesus, for them to place their faith in Jesus, that came with a giant cost. Their families sometimes would kick them out of their home. People wouldn't, would stop doing business with them. I'm not going to buy your grain. I'm not going to buy your livestock or I'm not going to buy your, the coughs that you're weaving and so forth. I'm not buying from you anymore. So their customer base would have plummeted. Then there's other people who wouldn't even sell to them in the first place. So they, they would have to spend extra high amounts of money just to get the simple things in life. So these, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were really struggling. They really had no source of income. And so what Paul would do is he went around all the churches, the churches in Corinth and Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica, and he was collecting money from these, these, these groups here that wouldn't face the same level of persecution because they grew up in Gentile cities. And so therefore, it was easier for them to continue on with business and so forth. He would take money from these Gentile communities, essentially, and bring it into Jerusalem to look after the Jews. And so really, one reason to give was to help those who are less fortunate than you are. And, you know, in many ways, we're right in that situation. I mean, you think about how fortunate we are to live in this country. I, I always think it's funny when I see on the news how people talk about railing against the 1%, you know, on their iPhones and stuff, right? They're just railing against the 1% of, you know, really going against the billionaires. And I understand that because they're thinking, well, why is it fair that they have all that money? I want a piece of that. But you know, if you think about it, if you live in Canada, you're likely part of the 1% of the world. I mean, if you have a car, you are far apart from the rest of the world. You're, you're extremely wealthy. 
extremely well off. And so we are incredibly blessed in this country. And so what we do is we have the opportunity now to go and help and support others. Whether that be through Compassion International or whether it be through World Vision or whether it be merely helping the people who are living on the streets, helping the less fortunate, the people who didn't have the same financial advantages as we are. We get to do that. There isn't an obligation. You don't have to do that. You get to do that. But it may not even be just someone who is, who is less financially well-off than you. It might be helping out a family member. It might be helping a friend. It's just we get the opportunity to give. And please understand, there is way more to give than just money. You can give your time. And that time could be maybe you're helping out on one of the... the uh, uh, the teams here at the church, or maybe you're helping out a, a, a soup kitchen, or maybe you're helping out at, um, at some local charity where you're just donating your time. Maybe you give a hug. It's amazing how, how rich and uh, beneficial a simple hug could be. Or maybe that really rare gift, a listening ear. Not, not an ear trying to fix not an ear trying to give advice so that the problem goes away, but a listening ear that says, I love you more than I love my own comfort. I'm willing to just listen to your problem and love on you. Because really what you get to give is you get to give your heart. And again, I said it earlier and I'm going to say it again here at New Life. That's what we're after. We're not after your money. We're after your hearts because we believe that's what God's after. Because in, in having your heart, in opening your heart to us, we can then give our heart to you. And we get to experience community as a group, not for the, the sole purpose of community, but because within that context of community, now we get to experience Jesus for one another. I get to experience Jesus in Marco. And Marco gets to experience Jesus in me. And so we get to experience that. And so we can't do that unless we give. And what's beautiful about that is I'm not looking for you to tithe your heart. I don't want 10% of your heart because I don't think God wants 10% of your heart. I think God wants your heart or your whole heart. So the first reason we give is we give so we can help those who are in need financially or really in anything. Maybe it's a meal even, right? There's all kinds of ways for us to give to one another. But the other reason to give that scripture talks about is giving to those who teach us the word of God. And so in Galatians chapter six and verse six, Paul writes this, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 14, he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we, ensure, we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar. So the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 
So the scripture does tell us and teach us that we are to share material wealth, share finances with those who go and teach the word of God. And the reason for that is that God has selected some who are going to teach the word of God. He set them aside so that they wouldn't have to focus their time and energy on a, on a regular job, such as building houses or, or laying asphalt or, or whatever it is. They, would, they wouldn't have to spend that time on that. Instead, they could spend their time in Father's Word, studying it, preparing, so that they can then go and minister to other people. That's all it was about. And, and so it wasn't for them to get rich. It was just so that they could focus on that. That's it. And so here at New Life, you know, we've got, we've got bills to pay. As, as Jeremy said, you know, we're renting the facility here. You can see the equipment we have up here. And so if you want to be a part of that, then you can help support us so that in giving, we can continue on what we're doing here. Because if we're not here, then I guess we have to do it outside in the parking lot. And that's not so bad in the summertime, but not so great in February. And that's all it's about. But again, it's all about freedom. You get to give, not have to give. That's the, that's the one big thing I want you to understand, the freedom in giving. But in doing so, in giving, there's incredible benefits. In giving, God will send you his latest CD from his sermon that he just preached. You see that all the time, right? Right? If you give for that, for that monthly donation, we'll send you this book. We'll send you his nice ornament, right? We'll, we'll send you some. That's not the kind of reward that I think God has for us. He's got something way better. So Paul, he's writing to the Philippians. And the Philippians had just given him this, this incredible gift. And so he says to them in Philippians 4, verses 10 to 17, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's saying here, you wanted to give earlier, but you weren't able to. And he doesn't, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't chide them. He's like, you wanted to, but you couldn't. And that was okay. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how, along, how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Again, Paul's saying, I didn't need your money. It's not what I was after. I was okay, and I've learned how to get through rich times and poor times. Why? Because what was the secret? What was the secret Paul learned? It's that famous verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reason I don't need your money, because Jesus looks after me. He provides my needs. He cares for me. So it's not give me your money because I need your money. Look what he says. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Again, he wasn't, he wasn't demanding money from these churches, but these people, they were willing to give, to benefit. But look what he says. Not that I seek the gift itself. I'm not after your money. That's not what I'm after. But I seek for the profit which increases to your account. See, here's the thing. Every time you give 
to a ministry, to, to new life, to another church, wherever you give, every time you give, you are participating in the work, in the ministry that's happening there. So for the last almost 15 years, I have been working at a crossways life and I've been doing counseling there and I live off of the support there. We, we, we have a, a small you know, donation that people will give for the counseling, not nearly enough to cover our bills. So others have come and they've given to support the ministry. And what's beautiful about it is they, whether they realize it or not, they benefit in the reward and helping all these people. Maybe they don't see it right now, but on the other side of eternity, they're going to discover the impact that they had in changing all those lives. That doesn't mean they never sat through one counseling session. They never led anyone to the Lord at Crossways. And yet they participated in all the work being done there. If, again, if you give at New Life, you are participating in the work that's happening here so that others may experience and know this grace of God in the community that it brings with them. And so that's really what we're doing. We're inviting you into being a part of something bigger than yourselves. That's why God is asking do you want to be a part of what I'm doing? That's it. Freedom to give. And here's the thing. You get to give as much as you want. It's a free will, no obligation gift of any amount as Father leads. So the question is, well, how much is enough? That's really the question that people always come back to. Well, shouldn't I just... 10%, isn't that a great way to start? Because it sort of gives me a check mark, right? I, I gave 10%, so therefore it's okay. And, and is it 10% net or 10% gross? I don't know, I'll just pick one. And, and we're just looking for that, that mark that says, I'm doing okay, God, will you love me? And I'd say this, why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask him what to give? I remember working with a, a group of elders and they, uh, they were really adamant on, on this idea. Well, no, we have to teach tithing. They have to give. They have to give 10%. And I said, well, why can't we trust them to trust Father? Why can't we trust them to ask Father what they believe Father wants them to give? And you just do that. They said, well, we want them to step out in faith. So I turned to them. I said, well, why don't you step out in faith first? Because really what you're most worried about is how are you going to pay your bills? Well, why don't you trust God to put it on their hearts to give and they'll give as Father leads them to give. And maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 2%, maybe it's 15%, maybe it's 30%, maybe it's 0.1%. Is that okay? It's gotta be. Because we're trusting God to look after all of our needs, are we not? So even as a church, we're trusting you to trust Father to let Father lead you. And so there's no amount, there's no number. It really is a free will gift. There's no tithing here. We'll, we do not ask, we do not want a tithe because a tithe is mandatory. Instead, we want you to give and give from the heart. Let me close with this last passage here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 12, Paul says this. And this is really what my, my commission to you would be. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. 
As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. You're free, free to give as Father leads you. Heavenly Father, we are, we are amazed and, and overwhelmed by the, the trust and the freedom that you give to us. In many ways, it would be better if you did control us. If there were rules and boundaries that we were to operate under because it would, it would make us feel safer, but that's not what you wanted. And it's not better because really it would miss out on your life. Because rather than trusting you to bring all things to pass, we would just be doing it in our own strength. And apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Father, you don't want our tithe. You don't even want our money. You want our hearts. And that may come as we give, as we support others and help others in need. But really, you simply want us to come to you, to talk with you and trust you, and then for you to give as you so purpose. So thank you, Father, for this freedom. In your name we pray, amen.